I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the stupid answer. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chits, <laughs> Oh, right. Hello and welcome to episode 402 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice of young adult cancer, coming to you from downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. I'm your co-producer, Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first-time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. And on this episode, Brave New Weed. Joel Dolce, former editor-in-chief of Details and Star Magazine, traveled the world to the new frontier of cannabis, shedding light on everything you didn't know about weed and didn't even think to ask for his new book, Brave New Weed. Joe joins us live in studio to discuss his book and get real about the cannabis debate. Survivor Spotlight on young adult survivor Kelly Moragliata from the CancerCon Steering Committee. Hello, Mallory. Hello, Laurel. Hello. Hello. Oh, goodness. How are you? Great. Delightful. He- he- hectic week, but all, all things said and done, working, working our way back to you. It's been a week. <laughs> But yeah. Um how are you, Matt? I'm I'm really well. I'm excited. I'm going to Vienna next week. <gasps> wow. I'm You're going, going to the land where all the music lives. I'm g- <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm going to where my mother's father was born and the house he was raised in is still there. And we have the address. Get out. And I may figure out a way to stop by and see who lives there. You That's should. incredible. Yeah. Just go knock on the door. You don't know me, and <laughs> I don't speak German. <laughs> However, yes. My Ask pr- Noel first. Ask yeah. Noel for some right. tips. No, he's got like he's my Zagat guide. No, he's been there a million times. Oh, he's a guide. But what? you <laughs> should take a picture, like a family picture. Do you have any of them, like of them in the house? No. You should. Oh, okay. No, it was like a thousand. Scrap that. Yeah, yeah. Stop <laughs> having mind. ideas. Stop. But um, I am going to be speaking and performing <laughs> in Vienna. For That's incredible. Twelve to sixteen hundred. 
executive professionals from the pharma biotech international universe. What makes That's you the really most cool. excited about that? What? What are you like? What makes you the most excited I'm playing about that? Piano in Vienna. That's yeah, it. I, I was gonna say if if it's, it's not, not if it's not the playing in Vienna where all of the music literally came from. Yes. It, I mean, like the piano. I'm Vienna. Playing, I'm giving Mallory. How you doing over there? She's, I'm music nerding out on a level that is inexplicable. She's like it's like fanboy verisimilitude. Like <laughs> she's excited that I'm playing piano in Vienna. I I very much am. <laughs> Yeah, I can't like the words I'm playing piano in Vienna next Wednesday are off the charts. You know who else played piano in Vienna? Here we go. Mozart. And Beethoven. <laughs> I mean that you don't get cooler than no, that. No, you just don't. And about twenty other composers I yes. could list off and bore everyone with. Mm, yes. Well, I wouldn't be bored. Perhaps others would be bored. Others would be bored unless you're a music nerd. So that's exciting. And uh, we are r- wrapping up Team Stupid Cancer's Ragnar and, yes, the, and the marathon. marathon. It was a big week for Team like Stupid 49, Cancer. 49 runners. That 49 athletes. Yes. Yeah. It's a amazing. whole lot of athletes. $99,000. Because Sean is not here. I wanted. I want to be dropping all of those numbers. <laughs> all the numbers. So 49 athletes raised $99,000 at two events. Yes. That's very, very cool. That is the power of Teams to Be Cancer, and that is the power of this community. It's incredible because if you look at the actual teams who were doing the Ragnar, you know, like some of them had just met the individual that they were running for, you know, and they just felt so strongly for the cause that they wanted to give not only their time, but I mean, these people are pushing their bodies to their absolute limit over the weekend. And that's not just like signing off a check, although that's incredibly important. And so we're so grateful for the individuals who do that. I think that showing that like stamina and that endurance and also the team leaders who we are going to be highlighting and social coming up, but the team leaders for that Ragnar Relay and what they did for their team to empower their team and to bring those spirits together and to keep those spirits high. We're sharing some of the pictures on our Instagram and Twitter so and Facebook. And so I just I invite everybody and ask everybody to go look at it and just kind of look at the excitement that is involved with this. And it's just the beginning, which I think is the most exciting part. And it's fast. Yeah. And, and we relaunched teamstupidcancer.org today. We did. With a fancy new interface and all this great information to get involved and learn more. And mm-hmm. once we have uh, more social on Instagram, we'll be integrating Instagram with the website. Absolutely. Very, super cool. Yeah. Also, just to sort of backtrack a little and piggyback off of what you were saying, Laurel, I think it's incredible. We had some of our community members running in the Ragnar Relay. Uh, One of our previous spotlights, Kelly Davis, did her first run ever as part of the Ragnar series. I saw that. Which is just incredible. It's like all of, you know, everyone just jumping on board and wanting to run. It's just, it's great. I love the holy shit I'm alive posts when people finish anything. They're the best. They're I great. so agree. <laughs> Especially when you finish the New York City Marathon. Yes. That's just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, and we got some cool stuff on social going up. We got the, well, this isn't um, unknown to our community with the financial toxicity issues. <laughs> One in three cancer patients have to turn to friends or family to pay for care. We also have data that says two thirds of every Bankruptcy is for medical reasons, and two-thirds of every medical bankruptcy is someone under the age of 40. 
and that's a really big shitty deal. But we you had- know what the worst part is is reading those comments is that every single person just sat there and said yes. This is my story. Mm-hmm. That it would not a single person, except apparently myself, was incredulous to that. Nobody was, nobody was having that holy light bulb. This happened? Question moment. mark. No. It's no surprise that cancer makes you broke. It's sad. Well, we had other uh, inspirational news. Um, John Lester really uh, showed his spirit. Hmm. The sports version yeah. of the, the sports moment of this stupid cancer show? <laughs> no, well, I'm looking at what was mm-hmm. really went very well on our Facebook page. Anthony Rizzo was diagnosed with cancer. John Lester, another baseball superstar, diagnosed with cancer, now beat cancer, came to his aid. Yeah. Yeah. I think, did I get that right? No, you did. And I think that That's what is- That's a sports thing I got right. That is. Okay. Yeah, it's that. I'm aware that sports A exists. visual round of applause. This is not the Mike and Mike show. But I think that what was really interesting about that and what I really liked about seeing the comments and the engagement on that post that we posted on Facebook about the Cubs and the two uh, baseball players was that everybody was just like, this is why I love sports and this is I, you know, this is why I like this community. And it's interesting because I think that you know, although cancer is a thread, obviously, throughout the entire community, it's not something that everybody thinks about every single moment of the day. And so it's really great when you can share these moments, you know, that it's like this World Series or these different sports wins and, and you know, and, and you have these other interests with your friends in the community. And when you can just talk about those things, because the people in this community just get it. You don't have to explain the other stuff. You can talk about your interests and you can talk about who won the sports game because they already get the other stuff. Right. Very impressive. I, I'm so impressed with our Facebook engagement and our social. It's uh, very exciting. I agree. I think it's it's exciting, and I think the more people do it, um, that's the, was going to be the poorest sentence ever. But I just the, the more <laughs> engagement we have, <laughs> it's gooder. The more people go on there, I think it just shows like a strength and a bravery, and it and it allows other people to see that and to want to share their story as well. So I think just the more we get on there, the more engagement we have. Fantastic. Well, on that note, let's kick off our show with our Survivor Spotlight. In our Survivor Spotlight, Kelly Maragliata is 23 years old and a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. She kicked cancer's ass twice, and on November 30th, she will be celebrating one year in remission. She is also on the CancerCon 2017 steering committee and an overall insanely amazing person. Please welcome Kelly Maragliata. Kelly. Hey, everyone. Hi there. So... You went to your first cancer con this year, and I and I, I can't even put into words how insanely, amazingly transformative you claim it was. It was. It was absolutely amazing. I went by myself. Um, I was part of the VIP club, and I fundraised and went by myself. It was my first trip ever traveling alone, and I went, and I went on the first trip to see the amphitheater and to see the brewery and I instantly met a bunch of people and I just felt such a sense of community and that was 
probably the best word to describe the whole weekend was community and any feeling I ever felt of being alone, being a cancer survivor, people not understanding, I felt everyone understood what I went through. And it was one of the most incredible experiences I have trouble putting into words sometimes, too. So let's go back to that horrible time, <laughs> which was a year ago, you know, for your second diagnosis. We, we, we always ask our interviewees, uh, what was life like prior to you're getting sick where they're telling us, oh, I was, life was great and I was working or in school or dating and, and then the shit hit the fan. So we, we want to put context behind your story to show why young adult cancer is just so different. I was, when I was first diagnosed, I was 20. I was a sophomore at Rutgers and it just came out of nowhere. I wasn't feeling good and I found a lump on my neck and the last thing you think when you're 20 years old is cancer and I was at school and I found out that I was gonna have to go through chemotherapy and that I needed to get a surgery and things like that and I was my first thought was I'm gonna have to withdraw from semester and I it was something in me that like clicked eventually and I was like okay well you know, like, I need to get these scans, I need to make a plan, and I'm just going to have to work with Rutgers to accommodate me, and I'm going to stay in school. And I ended up staying in school. I had to go through fertility treatment, which was not offered to me from my oncologist, and I had to bring it up through research. And that is one of the things that I think is a problem, because that is something so important to me, being able to have my own kids and have that taken away. And I could have not even known if I didn't do my research. So I went through fertility treatment, went through chemo. It was actually pretty easy. And then about a year later, I came back, and that's when it got kind of hard. I was a senior at this point in college, and I worked really hard to catch up from the first time to graduate. And uh, I was trying to enjoy my senior year. I was signed up to run a half marathon, and I was traveling for spring break. And I'm like, now I have to put my life on hold again and deal with cancer and this time I went with a different oncologist and he said that we need to start immediately and hearing that at 22 this time and just here like this is the first time like I felt that I could be beat by cancer and it was it was just terrible feeling but I ended up going through some chemo found out it wasn't working some more chemo um, I graduated, but um, it was a, a rough battle. And then I had a stem cell transplant and some radiation. And coming up, November 30th will be a year. But it's crazy to think that that was a year ago that I was going through radiation at this point. So we hear from a lot of our survivors who have uh, blood cancers that when they hear Hodgkin's lymphoma, they don't hear the word cancer and they don't equate the two was that your case that was I called my friends to tell them that I had Hodgkin's lymphoma and I didn't even know if I had cancer at first like it sounds like for me I felt like dumb that I didn't know if it was cancer or what it was but I wasn't even sure what exactly Hodgkin's lymphoma was I never heard of it previous to my diagnosis what would you say I know it was only a year ago and changed, but is there something that you wished you'd have been told 
or were you made aware of things or how did you get access to community? I found out through, about stupid cancer through my oncologist, but I didn't figure that out until I was almost done with treatment. And I wish that I had access to support groups that were my age. Uh, the first time around when I was only 20 years old, my first oncologist recommended a support group and I was by far the youngest by at least 30 years. And it was the most depressing thing I've ever went to. And I wish that I just had some kind of like buddy system or just knew someone else that was my age going through everything. So at 20 years old, you must have had a lot of friends that were probably very confused and unsure what to do with when you were diagnosed. Because at that age, you're not quite even a young adult. You're still just, just about a post-teenager. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, some of my friends just didn't know what to say. When I was first diagnosed, I, I didn't know what to say, and I had trouble telling people. Um, the first time I was diagnosed and a lot of people didn't know what to say or what to do or if I needed anything or if I wanted to sit out and not do anything or if I wanted to continue my life and just keep living before cancer and things like that. And a lot of people, like they, I had a great support system, but they just didn't know what to say at what time and what I needed. And I didn't even really know what I needed either. And it was, it was interesting and it was just something that we just had to learn to do and just try to, I finally figured out during treatment that I just needed people with me and it didn't, we didn't have to talk about cancer and people wanted to ask, but they were afraid if they should ask. And um, the first time around, I kind of didn't tell a lot of people either. So um, if people overheard, they didn't know if they wanted to ask and I just never wanted to be the girl with cancer. And um, that's kind of how I felt. And my friends never wanted me to be the girl with cancer, never wanted to refer to that to me, but they knew I had it. It was just, it's a lot like to digest. And I don't think my friends completely digested at first, but you know, they were a fantastic support system, but that was kind of that and how they acted around me. <laughs> When you attended CancerCon this year, you know we really revel in how people can meet their peers, but you actually met your peer, another young woman who had Hodgkin's twice. Yes. I met my friend Jen, who was my age, who was a year older than me. She had the same treatment. She had the same situation. And I was just, it, when I first met her, was the first trip I went on. And I sat next to her on the bus and we started exchanging stories and throughout the whole weekend we would just be talking about our stories and then talking about something else and it was just the same story and I am so grateful for that to, for someone to completely understand everything I went through and to just be like oh well I was doing this and she's like I wish I knew that or oh I did this I'm like that is such a good tip like why didn't I know that and it was just it was insane. It was just something that when I, I could always look back on, we're planning on hanging out all cancer con again too. And it's just something I'm so grateful for to find someone who understood me to a T. And now you're giving back and you are on the cancer con steering committee. That is pretty cool. I am very humbled and honored to be part of it. That's such a, it's just an awesome thing to do.
So what was it like when you found out that you were eligible to apply, and what was it like when you found out you were accepted? I spoke to someone um, at CancerCon, just how do I get involved and to continue the community. I'm like, I can't wait until next year at CancerCon. Like, I need something else to do with Duty Cancer. And they were telling me about meetups and other things. They're like, oh, we could also apply for the steering committee. Um, and you could play in CancerCon. And I was like, that's so cool. I used to work in nonprofits, event planning. I'm like, that is perfect. That's something right up my alley. Um, and then I was working with Allie on a different project with my cancer center. And she was like, you have to apply. So I applied and she emailed me. I called her immediately. And I was just so excited that I get to help mold CancerCon and have someone have an experience like I did, I would give anything, even just have one person meet their peer and just have this understanding and not feel isolated. That would just mean the world to me. And I can't wait to offer everything I have for CancerCon for uh, the whole stupid cancer community that's going to attend. And I'm just so extremely excited. Well, we are incredibly proud of you. Uh, we ask our guests, what is it they would say to the next them as you know, that's a fairly common theme in what we offer from support services. How would you tell the next you something you wished you were told? Uh, what would that be? Um, I think I wish I was told that it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to show that, you know, you don't have to. I had a very positive attitude, and I think that's great. But you don't have to smile through everything. If you're upset, you get to cry. And if you're uh, just having a bad day and want to stay home and stay in bed, you could do that. But if you want to not feel okay, it's okay to not feel okay. And I would tell myself that, and I would tell anyone else that, so it's okay to not be okay. Kelly Maragliata, two-time Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor and CancerCon steering committee member, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You got it. All right, Mal. And now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Stupid Cancer does a lot of awesome things, and here's what's happening now. Join us for a different kind of social mixer. No pressure, no judgments, no stigma. Best of all, no sitting around in a circle sharing your feelings. Find a meetup in your area at events.stupidcancer.org or host your own meetup. Just go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup. We have a meetup happening in Sacramento. Very nice. We want to see how you get busy living, so please follow Stupid Cancer on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to tag us at Stupid Cancer. Join the movement. Show how you get busy living in your Stupid Cancer gear. Shop at stupidcancerstore.org. We've been doing the show for 10 years now and want to hear more from you, our listeners. So please tell us what you'd like to hear on the show. Fill out our survey at stupidcancer.org slash podcast survey and get 15% off the Stupid Cancer store. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Joe Dolce joins us live in studio here, the author of Brave New Weed, Adventures into the Uncharted World of Cannabis. He's also the founder and CEO of Joe Dolce Communications and one of New York City's top presentation and media training 
Companies, Joe Dolce. Hello, sir. How are you? Hey, Matt. I'm really excited. It's been a long time coming to have you here on the show. So glad we're doing it. We met two years ago through a mutual friend when I became curious about medicinal marijuana, recreational marijuana, and the ludicrous politics that have spanned nearly 80 years. Really unbelievable politics. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you are, have enlightened so many. In your, and you've done so much and given so much to yourself. You've traveled the world um, to do you know, the impossible, which is uncover so much information and really distill the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of, of this, this ridiculousness. You know, it's not a bad job having to travel the world in search of the truth <laughs> yeah. about cannabis. Okay? I know, I know. Let's just be clear here. Yeah. So uh, I'm fascinated originally, and we were our mutual friend, Mike, um, we did a study here at Stupid Cancer of our you know quarter million, half a million audience and asked them, what's your position on the legalization of um, medicinal marijuana? And 99.8% said yes, at a rating of five out of one to five. So that's clear data that there's you know 20 or 30 million Americans affected by cancer in this country who want this to be a, a thing, national legalization of medicinal marijuana. But that doesn't preclude that you can't really figure out what that means without legalizing recreational to build industry around the science. You know, legalizing is a complicated, complicated story that we probably shouldn't get into today. Well, but we yeah. need to unblock research in the U.S., which has been blocked, barricaded for since 1972, thanks to Richard Nixon and scheduling the plant as a Schedule One narcotic. Same as LSD. Worse. Same as heroin. Oh, wow. LSD is not going to kill you either. I've yeah. never seen anybody <laughs> die from LSD. Schedule one means it has no medicinal benefit and um, is deleterious to your health and, and is course, highly addictive. Yeah, okay? And of course, that's a lie. That's completely It's a blatant untrue. lie. Yes. Yeah, it's a blatant lie. And yet it is enshrined in our law. So let's go back into history a little bit. We were talking before the show about the origins of how this was even in the first place considered something bad for you. It was perfectly legal, perfectly used by society for years and years in the apothecary world. It was a tincture. It treated everything and everything. And then all of a sudden in 1939, 1937, 1937 after Prohibition ended, some guy decided that that's going to be his new up in arms because he couldn't defend liquor anymore. He was the uh, J. Edgar Hoover of that era uh -huh. under the Roosevelt administration. His name was Harry Anslinger. He was a huge alcohol prohibitionist. And when that ended, he needed, basically, he needed a job. Yeah. He needed something to do. And so he fingered this plant. You're right. It was called cannabis indica or hemp oil or sativa oil. It was in most people's medicine chests. Right. But nobody made the connection between that oil and a brown bottle and the thing that a bunch of uh, uh, workers from Mexico, basically, and a few jazz musicians smoked at the time. It was very, right. very underused as a, as a smoking uh, thing. So that started it all. He basically started it all. He managed to pass a law in Congress uh, banning it for medicinal use. Doctors opposed it. The AMA even opposed it. They got railroaded. And he then uh, created such a bureaucratic hassle for doctors that they re took it out of the American uh, Pharmacopoeia in 1942. But he also passed some pretty stringent laws. You know, he was out there arresting jazz 
musicians. He actually arrested Gene Krupa and Anita O'Day for using cannabis. Yeah, the 1940s. Amazing. And, you know, people were saying, what are you doing? And he would say, you know, there's black people and there's musicians and they're using this thing and it's going to cause white people to have sex with, white women to have sex with black men. We got to ban this. I swear to you. I swear to you. (laughs) It's roots or racism. (laughs) It doesn't sound that different from building a wall, I have to say. Okay. Um, The roots of racism were there. And it was easier to ban the plant than it was to get these people out of the country. So they banned the plant. It was like that for a long time. And then it sort of went quiet in the 60s until the hippies. It went quiet in the 50s and the 60s until the hippies rediscovered it. Right. And then along came Richard Nixon, who really hated the hippies because they really hated the Vietnam War. And they were torturing him, and he decided to launch what is now known as the very first war on drugs. And cannabis was right in his sights. And he made it uh, very unpleasant and started arresting people and uh, coming down on them. So was there a disinformation campaign with scientists showing that it was bad for you? Or was there actual science being done that was suppressed showing it was fine for you? Great question. The former. In fact, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, NIDA, which has been around ever since the Nixon administration, has one purpose, which is to find the deleterious effects of drugs. And they have been busting their asses for over 40 years to find all of the terrible things about cannabis. And they came up with things that grew breasts in men or lowered man's sperm count, or my favorite, it was the gateway drug. Think about it, Matt. About 80 million Americans have used cannabis, okay? Do we have 80 million heroin, cocaine addicts in this country? Not even close. There's no empirical evidence this is the case. But if we did, they'd all live on Staten Island. <laughs> no, they live in California. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, uh, they've come up with a bunch of ludicrous things. What, what, what's interesting, though, is because it's banned to actually research the health benefits of cannabis in the United States, we have exported that research to Israel. So we, through the NIH, another organization, the National Institutes of Health, have funded Israeli research into the health benefits of cannabis. And they've been looking at things like cancer, traumatic brain injury, um, uh, bone regeneration, type 2 diabetes, and finding some really fascinating positive correlations with all this. So you had mentioned, we were talking before the show again, that this is banned in other countries as well as the United States. How are countries like Israel able to conduct this type of research? It's a great question. It's an oddity. I mean, most countries are bound by something called a single convention treaty, which forbids them from... It doesn't forbid them from doing... Uh, excuse me. It doesn't bid them from, forbid them from doing research. It forbids them from exporting and okay. importing cannabis. That's the difference. The research laws are territorially decided, Okay. That's the difference. So are this there, gets very complicated. I, no, that. completely. Are there countries where it is not banned, where this type of research could truly produce better science? Israel. Israel has the world's largest— So it's not banned in Israel? It is—Israel well hold on. Israel has the world's largest state-supported medical cannabis program in the world, 20,000 okay. patients. Okay. Okay? It's not a legalized— substance in Israel. In other words, you can't go into a dispensary and buy it. Right. There's no market for that. Right. No, it's all done through the Israeli medical system. And their insurance pays for 130 grams a month, by the way. Wow. Okay. 
So let's transport that into, I would say, the the power of consumer action and how we've seen like a domino. Everything sort of started in 1996, 20 years ago when California passed, was it Prop 215? Prop 215, exactly. And that was when, what what, what was the, 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 um, the igniter fluid for that? Where did that come out of nowhere? No, it came out of somewhere. It came out of, you know, look, like a lot of stuff in the cannabis movement, it came out of some very dedicated and somewhat wacky people. This one came from Dennis Perone. Dennis Perone was a Vietnam vet who loved cannabis. It really helped him with PTSD and sort of dealing with the horrors of the Vietnam War. Moved back to California um, with tons of pot in his duffel bag. Lots of Vietnam soldiers did this. The government was not going to be busting them, okay? These were war heroes. Right. Um, started a co-op, started a commune, actually started the world's first legal, uh, illegal cannabis dispensary in the middle of San Francisco. It was a tourist attraction. And he was busted and arrested and all sorts of things, but kept on going. And eventually his partner died of AIDS, um, after the cops had arrested him and went on trial, and Dennis was, they were both vindicated, and that got Dennis so pissed off that he decided he was going to author something called Proposition 215, which he did, which he got on the ballot and through another through the help of another organization, the Fantastic Drug Policy Alliance, they funded the proposition, they held Dennis in line, they got voters to uh, vote Who for any one back then. I don't remember. I don't remember who the governor was. was Jerry Brown? Possibly. Yeah. I don't remember. But it, it had nothing to do with that. It was a ballot initiative. Right, the, right. the citizens of California voted it in, and there it's been since two, uh, since 1996. So how long did it take for the second state to create a ballot initiative? What was the second state? Was it Massachusetts? It wasn't a ballot initiative. I don't know how it went in California. It was not a ballot initiative. I think it was a referendum. Okay. Colorado was the second one. Okay. So now there's many, many more states, and just this Tuesday on Election Day, how many more states? Well, three, three came on, uh, four came online, I believe. It was California, which was the mega state. Right. Okay, that's 40 million people, world's sixth largest economy, obviously the breadbasket of cannabis production in North America. Mm-hmm. Um, Maine came on, Massachusetts, and I believe Nevada. Yeah, Nevada. So those four came on for adult use. Right. Okay. Um, and then the other four came on for medical. The only one that didn't pass was Arizona. And it was by a very slim margin. I'm not sure why. So uh, I don't have the data on this, but uh, a significant number of states have legalized medicinal marijuana. And how many more states signed up for REC after the election? Well, four more were well, added or- on. Oregon has it now. Well, they in Washington? well, before the election, it was Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, D.C. Right. Now you added the other four that we just mentioned. Yes. So that's an increasing domino effect. Well, listen, I mean, Canada theoretically is federally legalizing in 2017. That's right. 85 million people with access to legal cannabis. And I don't think you can build a wall to stop it. No, and I think we're going to maybe, as if we don't have enough incentive to go to Canada. There you go. Laurel is waving her Are arms. you Canadian? She is Canadian. Yes, You is. know, it's a very rational society, honestly. A friend of mine just invited me to go live there if life under Trump became too intolerable today. I thought that was a very generous act that I'm <laughs> seriously taking, taking right. quite seriously. So if... So when uh, Justin Trudeau, is that his last name? It's Trudeau. Trudeau. I'm not obsessed with him or anything. Everybody is. You're the only one who's not. 
Does that mean that they will be uh, like they will be able to conduct the same kind of science in Israel and Canada? Don't know. I don't know Canadian laws. Okay. Don't know Canadian laws. But you know, all of this stuff is moving ahead with or without the law, which is what's fascinating. Right. The culture, the medical culture, the, the the popular culture is all moving forward. That's what enabled me to write Brave New Weed. I mean, there are so many places where so many interesting things are happening, and. Look, basically, cannabis is the most clinically uh, trialed substance ever known to man. We've been using it ever since we've been on the planet Earth. Right. There's never been a death, right? There's never been an addict of cannabis, a physical addict, which means you have to have it. Um, So we know it's not going to kill you. Right. I think, obviously, people can overuse it like any substance, like coffee, like sugar, so this may be a naive question, but why is it still Schedule A? I guess you're going to have to ask the DEA. Why the DEA has any aegis over health is another question that I've never been able to understand, okay? Um, it is Schedule 1 because Congress— Why is that Schedule A? Schedule, schedule one. 1. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't be scheduled anyway. If it's scheduled, it means it needs a doctor and a pharmacy, Right. And it means it's going to be sold in Walgreens. And frankly, that's just no fun. Right. <laughs> okay. And and it's sort of, it's against what the plant is. It doesn't really have to be that. It can be medical and should be prescribed and dosed and medically understood, obviously, to a large extent because it has so many benefits. But there's also a number of people who want, a vast number of people who want to use it to enhance their lives or to change their mind or, you know, think more laterally or go to sleep at night. Do you think it could be perhaps that you can't really industrialize it and there's there's no way that companies can profit from it? Or is there you can totally and it hasn't been figured it out yet? No, you can absolutely industrialize it. I mean, no big ag or pharma company is going to get near it until there's more of a national uh, system. Of distribution, let's right. say. Okay, but of course you can you can patent certain hybrids. Well, you Marinol can... exists, right? Marinol is a waste of time. I know, but it exists. It exists, but it was created by a drug company to so 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 the government could basically say, "Hey, look, you don't need to smoke the plant or use the plant anymore. Use this fake synthetic right. thing." Uh-huh. But because it look. Here's the the interesting and problematic thing about cannabis. It works as an ensemble. There are over 760 compounds within the plant that we know of today. They need to be together to get maximum benefit. If yes. you take something like what they did with Marinol, just pull one thing out of it, it's it's not very effective. No right. one would take Marinol. Everybody would rather smoke a joint or take an edible than use Marinol. It's not pleasant. So the... If they can't do the research, but they have some science out there, what is the future of progress in understanding how the different strains support different parts of the you know body's immune system? We had also spoken about how when they uh, in the nineteen eighties uh, during Reagan that. A lot of growers had to go indoors, and it changed the biological structure where they focused more on THC, and it lost a lot of the biological cannabinoid compounds that supported 
some human benefits. Health, yeah. yeah. The other compound is called CBD, and it's all the rage right now. It's anti-inflammatory, so it works well for pain. It, it works for a host of illnesses, including there's been some evidence that the THC and CBD together work well for cancer. I know people who are uh, experimenting with it in California, both makers and oncologists and patients, basically. I, I interviewed a number of them for Brave New Weed. Um, and these are serious oncologists, by the way. These are not not hocus pocus doctors okay these right. are serious oncologists dealing with people I mean, the two cancers that i understand it works most effectively for three i should say glioblastoma brain cancer um certain skin cancers and there's some evidence that it works in breast cancer and i don't know what type of breast cancer as we all know there's hundreds of different types of cancers with different mechanisms so it's not an easy blanket statement to make so what's happening now to answer the rest of the question is Certain makers of certain oils and products are doing informal studies to try to understand, okay, what strains made of what compounds work best on what illnesses. And all we can do right now is sort of accrue anecdotal data, but it's starting to come together. People are starting to learn it. There's a co-op in based in Bodega Bay, California. It's where Alfred Hitchcock filmed The Birds. Wow. And it's called Aunt Zelda's. And if you're a uh, California medical patient today, you can be a member of that co-op and understand the research that they've been doing in it. It's, it's the beginning, but it's very interesting. We hear from a lot of our cancer community that they don't necessarily need or care to get high. Yes. They like the fact that smoking um, marijuana helps them with pain it helps them with basic function it makes them hungry and it gives them less anxiety and that getting high would almost be an encumbrance to that some people think that and that's why there's cbd yes cbd i mean they say it's not psychoactive it has a very 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 minor effect i think of it as almost like a dull throb very minor though it's not going to change your consciousness at all and that's what people use but if you're treating cancers you generally need a combination of thc and cbd the good news about that though is after you start using these high concentrated uh, compounds you do build a tolerance and the effects are much less so you have to get through a certain period until you reach that limit of tolerance basically my brother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer at 13 and oh my passed away at 19 but during the time that I knew him, he smoked marijuana for pain. And just to get by, he didn't even want no interest in getting high. He just wanted to be a functional 17, 18-year-old kid. And this helped him do that when he was on all these experimental medicines that made him nauseous and made it, just ruined everything. So I also have an anecdotal story where um, we had a teenager in our community who was uh, smoking for hunger and all the, you know, the whole not to get high, I guess, for the CBD benefit, so to speak. And he was ratted out by a neighbor and got arrested. They arrested a teen with cancer. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So this is our story. Isn't that compassionate? I mean, it's just so uncompassionate. No, it is. It is. So where are we going? I mean, the Brave New Weed, an incredible book. I I just, I wanted to read you something. I was going to your Amazon. Um, (laughs) You have 14 five-star ratings out of 14 reviews. And I didn't pay for... Are you serious? <laughs> yes. I haven't looked at them. I'm, I'm afraid to. I haven't paid for any of them. I want you to know. Uh, this book changed my life, even as it confirmed things I'd felt in the course of 40-plus years of phenomenal personal research. This book not only endlessly sourced and entertainingly written, it contains important information about how to, to proceed in the post-prohibition future of weed in America. 
I love the distinction between stoners and cannabinists and celebrate Dolce's idea that in order for cannabis to become part of the mainstream, more people have to have their own personal use in a public way. Was that a lover of mine? Who wrote that? <laughs> uh, his name is Hungry Mind. I don't know Hungry Mind. I don't think I know Hungry Mind anyway. But, but I would encourage you, like, the, everyone is is in love with what you're talking about. You really struck a nerve. Uh, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about the places you did visit besides Israel because you learned so much. Well, Israel was amazing because not only did I go to the labs of the man who in, who discovered THC, Dr. Meshulam, but I also went into some nursing homes and I interviewed pain specialists. I really wanted to hear what doctors and providers had to say. So Israel was just fascinating. I spent a lot of time in California, obviously. It is the California's on the forefront of all things cannabis. I spent time in a weed tech startup, a bunch of really cool guys. The startup is called Meadow, and they're trying to build the digital infrastructure of the economy that's about to happen there. Wow. I interned in a dispensary in Denver called Denver Relief for about a week to understand just how difficult it is to actually run a business in this highly regulated economy of cannabis. Right. Let me tell you something. I looked at... The number of words in Colorado's gun regulations versus its cannabis regulations. And there's a discrepancy of 210,000 words. <laughs> wow. That, that's 210,000 more words in the cannabis regs Not than the in the regulation. gun regs. Okay, wow. That's how massively difficult it is. I interviewed some of the great uh, sort of historical figures who are still alive. Dr. Lester Grinspoon, who wrote the very first sort of redux book on cannabis called Marijuana Reconsidered in 1972, is a great friend of Carl Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould. Um, and actually he started the book because he used to say to Carl, he was a psychiatrist, a Harvard psychiatrist, Carl, you're going to ruin your very good brain if you keep smoking that stuff. And Carl would look at him and say, Lester, I'm not a fissured ceramic, which was his word for saying a crackpot. Here, have a joint. <laughs> um, they, uh, you know, so I, I went uh, there. I spent time um, in L.A. Uh, with companies that are trying to sort of build nutraceuticals out of out of some of the compounds in cannabis. And uh, learn talk, talk about that more. What is a nutraceutical? Well, it's 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 a sub. I guess you would call it like a supplement um, that hasn't gone through clinical trial. So I guess you can't officially say it does this, okay? And it's a way of avoiding the onerous, very expensive process of clinical trials. Like now, FDA approval uh, yeah, stuff? a lot yeah. of people don't think cannabis should go through this. It takes 20 years. It's highly expensive. And really, the only people that can afford it are pharma companies, okay? Right. And a lot of us, myself included, don't think that cannabis should be run by the pharmaceutical industry. It's a different animal. It's a plant. It's sui, it's sui generis. It really is its own thing. Right. And I, I, I just don't think it's going to help it uh, to, be, to be put under these uh, restrictions and constrictions. So um, where else did I travel? The free states, back and forth. Amsterdam. I went to the I went to the 25th anniversary of the Cannabis Cup, wow. um, which was sort of a drag. Mm. Um, it was. I sort of felt, will the 60s ever be over? Right. Being there, and interestingly, you know, because it's never been legalized in Holland, it's only been decriminalized. It's a very limited. It's a very limited palette of of strains. It's a very limited palette of use. Um, but here's what's interesting: cannabis has been decriminalized in Holland since the 1970s. They have the lowest rate of teenage use of cannabis of any country in Europe. Why do you suppose that is? Well, what does that tell you about prohibition? 
Does it increase curiosity and desire? I think it does. So I think... Well, it's like telling your kid, don't touch that. Exactly. (laughs) Don't touch that. They touch it, yes. Exactly. That's exactly what it's like. Um, And, you know, the the one thing I I learned, I learned so many things. I mean, this was such a great book to to research and write because I was... My brain was stimulated all the time. But one thing I learned is that education is a very radical thing. And once people start going to dispensaries and learning about the different strains and the compounds and how to use it more mindfully, how to use it more intelligently, really, um, there's no going back. Right. And that's what the prohibitionists fear. They fear that once the, once the population learns about it, learns more about it, um, that they'll never be able to demonize it again. And I think that's true. How do you feel about, and going back to the, the cancer side of things, we get posts on our wall and all over social media about uh, cannabis oil cures cancer. And there's a lot on, well, there's a lot more on the crazy side than there is on the science side. But in the, in the cannabinoid research world, there are books, there are authors, there are pseudo-credible people out there that are claiming that the reason it just doesn't exist in medical practice is because they don't the you know the the ultra conspiracy that they don't want that they don't want it getting out look that this could help there's a lot of myths yes. about cannabis I, I find the statement that it anything cures cancer immediately raises a red flag yeah. for me there are over 300 types of cancer yes. they don't operate in the same way mm-hmm. i've never heard of anybody who's cured of pancreatic cancer it's a rough Tough, right? Deadly illness. Okay, so whenever I see that statement, I'm immediately skeptical. No, you're validating my my opinion, but there's so much out there. That said, there are too much noise. Yeah, it's true. But look, there are a lot of people with skin cancer, with glioblastoma, with with other cancers who've had remission, um, perhaps cure. Look, here's the other problem: you hear of people who are cured. But you never hear from the people who aren't. Right. Well, right. Touche. Okay. Exactly. So I think we have to be skeptical, but I have to also say we have to um, learn more. We absolutely have to learn more. And why we're not is silly to me. So I keep seeing the phrase out of the cannabis closet. (laughs) In my book. In your book, in the reviews, in your press materials. What does that truly mean? Look, I believe firmly that we need to reimagine the plant. It came very clear to me that there's a lot of media images. Most of the times you see a story about cannabis, it's a burning joint. Somebody's smoking. You know, and it just looks bad. It looks like cigarette, old cigarette ads, like this right. is going to kill you, okay? So we need to see the way regular folks use cannabis. Some of them eat it. Some of them use vaporizers. Some of them are very good looking. Some of them are very clean cut. Not all of them have long hair or wear tie-dye clothes. Okay. We need to move beyond the media images. That's one thing. Second thing is, I think we need to talk about it a lot more. I mean, when I started the book, I was nervous. I have a career. I have a job. I'm a presentation and media trainer in New York City. My clients are C-level people, right? CEOs, CIOs, CTOs. They're way up there. And I was nervous. I didn't know what to say to them. But, that, you know, after a while, they were saying to me, okay, where are you? Why can't I get an appointment with you? And I would have to say I'm on the road reporting a book. Oh, really? What's your book about? Yeah. Well, it's about the brave new world of cannabis. 
And we know what the answer was. There were always two things. Hey, can you get me some? Or <laughs> or B, I want to know more about that. Can we talk? Awesome. Or I've used that for 40 years and I have all these questions. Or, you know, my wife and I are fighting because she wants to use it and I don't want our two-year-old exposed to it. What do you think? There's so many issues about it socially, medically, biologically, bot botanically. Um, we need to talk about it more. That's fascinating. So That's true. What you're assuming is not actually an assumption. Most people don't know they can talk about it. It's still... Or they need permission to talk about it. Yeah, it's like being gay in the 1970s. You only talked about it with certain people. Right. Right? And... You know, once you start talking, I had that. This is my second coming out. Not only am I gay, I'm now, now, you know, an exposed cannabis user. Uh, and once you start talking about it, you, you, I believe, and this was true for the gay, the gay movement also, is that you had to talk one to one to people. Right. You had to show your humanity. You had to change the image in a in a real emotional human contact way. And I believe that's true for this also. For those who are still skeptical, I mean. People who are in their 20s and 30s don't even think about this. It's like being, right. it's like being gay or gender or whatever. You know, if you're young, they're very fluid about this stuff, mm-hmm. very accepting, which is great. But for people our age, and I, mean, I don't want to say it's an age thing. It's, it's a mindset thing. We have to be able to explore more. But are you seeing that, that there is a, a specific demographic appreciation of how you talk about it, what it means to you? In society, all across, wow, all across, people from there. I know I've been on the on the road doing readings, and I call them weedings, where we look at product, <laughs> where I show them products and things like that from the free states. I, I bring stuff along. Um, the age is vast. The age it's from twenty to to seventy, and you know, uh, people in their fifties and sixties and seventies have a great interest in this product. It takes away your pain. It grows in the ground. It isn't going to hurt you. There are no side effects like most pharmaceuticals. You know, more people die of aspirin every year than have ever died from cannabis in, in the history of recorded time. More people die in the hospital of anything than from aspirin. I guess that's true. <laughs> I guess that's really true. Yeah. Um, so the whole journey has been pretty enlightening, I have to say. So what is your big, if you have a big takeaway? Are we on the path? Is there hope? What what would people like to? What would you like people to get after reading your book? Well, a lot of people say it makes them want to go out and smoke a joint. <laughs> um, I want them to know that that even though cannabis has been ubiquitous in our lives, we know very we don't know as much about it as we could, and that it's an underexplored resource and. That it can be really fun. That it can also be used for things like intimacy and empathy. And has been for thousands of years. You know, people think of it as a party drug or something that goes with alcohol. I I don't even think of it as a drug. I think of it as a plant. And I actually don't think it goes that well with alcohol. I think the effects are very different. Um, And I like sort of exploring different ways of using it in different situations. To completely sum up everything we've talked about, I found one other Amazon uh, review, five stars. Wow. And it's, this book vindicates all of the closeted weed smokers who continuously have had to justify their love affair with cannabis. Yeah. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. So your, your sequel, the Coming Out of the Cannabis Closet, 
is <laughs> <laughs> coming. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it, it is true, though. I mean, so many people, they don't talk about it because they don't even know how to talk about it yet. I'm trying to initiate a new dialogue around it. Is there a stigma or is it a perceived stigma? Say that again? Is there a stigma? If you if you do say, oh, you want to smoke some weed tonight, you know, is that stoner culture? Or is that not, you know, like, how, I think to me that's the mindset Look, that's been baked in. Let me, let me not answer that question by saying this. There, we have no other words for people who use cannabis than stoner. Right. In the popular lexicon. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in my book I made a conscious effort to call them cannabists. And I and I kept using the the expression. I wanted to enhance my consciousness, okay? right? Or 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 think about things more laterally, which is what I find it does. It, it enables you to sort of think about things wider, not necessarily better. By the way, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, it really makes me more creative." And it's like, well, actually, you may feel more creative, but write it all down. Wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, and look at it again. <laughs> See how it looks, reads, and sounds. Okay. Right. So I think it gener it does in I think it does um, generate more thoughts, right? But you have to then evaluate: are those thoughts more interesting thoughts or less interesting? Thoughts? So it's it there's a cultural and semantic shift away from words like stoner and getting high. I'd like that to happen. Like I to think happen I think it's more expansive, and I think it's you know I'm not a stoner. I'm just not. I don't smoke every day, five times a day. I just don't do that. Well, I, I work. I have a life. I have a job. There's some things I don't. I can't read when I'm high. I, I don't. I doesn't really work for me, right? Well, I mean, culturally, you look uh, stoner Spicoli. That's what it comes down to. It's fast times. That's right. But you look at you know Bill Maher is a very publicly active you know uh, a marijuana smoker his whole life, and he's not a stoner he's an upstanding human being that is responsible and does his thing well, maybe a stoner but you know he he does other things too and but you don't think of bill maher as that image he, he's and not we, need, right. we need other images it's like right. not everybody who drinks a glass of wine is a drunk right as a matter of fact they're connoisseurs half the time yeah, that, that's the word so your can- cannabinists are the new connoisseurs there you go connoisseurs Can- <laughs> that might be a michael crichton book <laughs> He's dead. Yes. yes. <laughs> One of my great sources, however, who's working in the cannabis field, was Michael Crichton's editor. As really? a matter of fact, he named Michael Crichton named one of his characters Michael Bacchus after Michael Bacchus, one of the great minds in the new world of cannabis. Wow. Very impressive man. Well, we have to leave it at that. Brave New Weed, the new book by Joel Dolce, is in bookstores on Amazon. He is touring the country. You can go to Brave New Weed. Dot com. He's got a great blog, great testimonials. Guys, got to get this book. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the Stupid Cancer Show. What a pleasure. All right. Now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. That's our show, the 402nd episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank my guests, Kelly Margliata. And Joel Dolce, author of Brave New Weed. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. 
Find us online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan, on behalf of the team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you back here next time. Good night. I just did what I had to do. Ain't like I had a choice, but I'm a